Thank you for joining us for CF on Cyber, the podcast for executives and compliance counsel who want to cyber-proof their businesses. Please welcome Carlton Fields attorney, Jack Clavy. So today we're going to talk about the new guidelines adopted on November 16th of 2018 from the European Data Protection Board. The goal today is not to go through this in long detail. They're pretty significant and that would take a long time. The, the goal today is to hit some of the highlights of these new guidelines, focusing on the impact of them for US-based companies. We have with us two Carlton Fields attorneys, Michael Yeager, who's a shareholder in our New York office. Uh, Michael does a significant amount of cybersecurity work across industries with a particular experience in healthcare and financial services. We also have with us Stephen Blickensterfer, who's a privacy attorney and a CIPP from our Miami office. So welcome, Michael, and welcome, Steve. Steve, let's get started with you. These guidelines are published by something called the European Data Protection Board. Can you give us a sense of what that is? Hey, Jack, thanks. Uh, So the European Data Protection Board, or the board for short, is an independent European body that promotes cooperation between EU regulators. It's comprised of uh, the various member state data protection authority uh, representatives. And one of the main things they do is achieve um, this cooperation through guidelines, through issuing guidelines uh, on the GDPR on on big issues. Uh, Just to provide some context on how important some of these guidelines are, back in March, I went to the, uh, you know, was at a big conference the European regulators were there, and one of the messages that they conveyed to us was um, that they believe that we have enough guidelines uh, or that there are sufficient guidelines out there um, and that they've you know, put enough information out there where companies can start, uh, you know, can be well on the road to GDPR compliance. So, uh, you know, we've been waiting for these guidelines on extraterritoriality of Article 3 for quite some time. So it's, you know, one of those things that, we shouldn't expect too many more guidelines. Um, so w- when we do see guidelines from the board, it's, it's pretty important and we shall all take notice. Uh, so one of the other things I wanted to mention were the import or the, um, the effect of these guidelines. Really, at the end of the day, they're persuasive authority. Uh, the, the GDPR is enforced by the member state uh, data protection authorities, and it's interpreted by European courts, not the board. However, it's safe to say that these guidelines are pretty persuasive, particularly where we see the, uh, the board aligning itself with uh, European court uh, case law, uh, you know, the Google versus Spain case, for instance. Uh, so, you know, I think it's safe to say that these guidelines in particular are pretty persuasive. All right. So, Michael, we, we heard from Steve a bit about the board that creates these guidelines, but this particular release in, in mid-November you know, what, what is it aimed at? Well, Jack, I'd say the purpose of these guidelines okay. is to make clear the territorial scope of the GDPR. It's like the old cliche, the long arm of the law. So the guidelines are trying to tell you how long the arm is, how far it reaches. Uh, and the guidelines have to be reviewed kind of carefully because they're, they're full of caveats and nuance. But they're still helpful. It's not all pain. And I'd say there are two main ways that the arm of the GDPR can reach somebody, can reach a company. First, 
if you're an establishment in the EU. And second, if you're targeting data subjects in the EU. And that's how the guidelines are organized. They discuss what makes a controller or processor an establishment, and they discuss what actions qualify as targeting. So we've, we've linked to these guidelines in the podcast prompt, so you can pull them up and, and take a look. But it really, they are organized around these two principles, you know, the first of the establishment criteria and the second, the targeting criteria. Let's start with this establishment criterion. Steve, what is this? So Article 3.1 lays out the establishment criterion, and it says that the the GDPR applies to the processing of personal data in the context of the activities of an establishment of a controller or processor in the union, regardless of whether the processing takes place in the union or not. So that's what we know from Article 3.1. The recitals give us a little bit more background And now these guidelines provide us even more information as to how to understand how the GDPR applies to uh, a controller or processor with an establishment in the EU. Uh, So breaking this down, uh, first, the guidelines actually remind us, which is always helpful to take a step back and ask and, and conduct this analysis by first asking, are we talking about a controller or a processor? A company's GDPR responsibilities and this analysis of extraterritoriality uh, hinges on whether or not the, the company is acting in the capacity of a controller or a processor. And that sometimes is a, is a complicated question. But uh, addressing that first, the guidelines then instruct that we are to then address whether there is an establishment in the union. And what does this mean? Well, Recital 22 talks about an establishment as being one that implies the effective and real exercise of activity through stable arrangements, regardless of legal form. Well, what are stable arrangements? Um, The guidelines further explain that this is a very fact-specific analysis. Both the degree of stability of the arrangement and the effective exercise of real activities in the state are to be taken into account. So could one single employee or agent of a non-European Union entity be, be sufficient? Maybe. That's, that's actually what the, one of the examples that the guidelines gives us as this could be sufficient, and it's not necessarily tied to uh, any particular legal form. So figuring out whether you have an establishment can be particularly tricky for Internet businesses, uh, in, you know, and, and companies that sell services online. Uh, but one of the things that the guidelines does help us with, it, it eliminates the idea that just because your website is accessible in the EU, uh, that's not enough to create an establishment there. That's, that's something that the guidelines definitely answer in the affirmative. It's also important, and just before we move on to the next point, uh, uh, that there must be a connection. The, the, the guidelines talk about um, in the context of the activities of an establishment. So in doing, conducting the analysis under establishment, there must be a link between the, um, the processing and that establishment. And then the guidelines then talk about the, the case law. And this is where the EU case law kind of comes in and adds additional flair, uh, in particular the Google versus Spain case. And that, that case is important as the guidelines instruct because the connection between the processing and the establishment can even exist 
if the local establishment is not taking uh, a direct role in the data processing itself, which is pretty significant. And I want to, Michael, I want to go back to this idea that Steve talked about where under certain circumstances, a single employee would be enough to find an establishment. How do you think that's going to play out? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's important to think about it. I mean, let's say you're an academic medical center or a hospital system. If you have just one employee residing in the EU who is promoting consults toward EU markets, you might be making yourself an establishment. Oh, hey, uh, European Union residents, we have really expert cancer docs here. Um, you can get a consult from them without coming and having to visit the U.S. If someone is established, if someone is in the US, EU promoting those consults, that could be enough. Same goes for an investment advisor. If there's one person in the union soliciting investors, even that by itself could be enough. Uh, the examples in the guidelines make this clear. Uh, in this case, I think it's example two. But in general, I, you know, frankly, it's worth pausing a little bit to talk about the examples and the role they play in the guidelines. Uh, they seem actually quite important for cashing out what the guidelines mean. You can tell because they keep using this Latin term, in concreto. It's like five times in the document. It's <laughs> elegant. It's a little goofy, frankly. I mean, when I Googled this, I found it mostly popping up in Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. So this is not exactly the kind of thing that you see in U.S. regulators' guidance. But we're in Europe, and it's there. And um, in concreto serves a purpose. It tells you that the analysis will be concrete, tied to verified facts, and crucially, on a case-by-case -case basis. So a lot of this analysis is just not about bright-line rules. It's about context and the totality of the facts. Even where they say, oh, this one factor by itself is not enough, they can still use that factor as part of their contextual analysis to say, you are, in fact, an establishment. Right. So, you know, Steve, another aspect of this establishment prong uh, is that if you are an establishment, it doesn't matter if it's EU resident data or not. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, this is a, a, a big distinguishment between uh, the establishment prong and the targeting prong, which we'll get to, into in a second. Um, but the establishment prong applies no matter where the data subject is. And this is really illustrated in example four in the guidelines. This is the example of a French company that developed a, a car sharing application exclusively to customers in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And the service is only available in those three countries, but all the personal data is being processed and carried out by the data controller in France. At, at, at first, you would think, you know, there's no European residents involved, no, no citizens, so this can't possibly apply. Wrong. Under the establishment prong, three, Article 3.1, uh, this French company will be required to comply with the GDPR. We also know from the guidelines that the place of processing is, is irrelevant. Uh, we already knew this, but what we didn't know for sure is whether an EU processor working with a U.S. controller is required to comply with the controller requirements, too. And these, these guidelines clarify that that is not the case. But note, if you're, a, if you're a U.S. processor working with an EU controller, 
For example, going back to example four, if you're a U.S. processor working with that French company that is, has developed a car-sharing application, the GDPR technically does not apply to you. However, the guidelines say that some of the GDPR will indirectly apply through contractual arrangements under Article 28. While those may not already be in place, um, we suspect that in light of these guidelines, we'll, we'll see more of these in the future, these data processing addendums to contracts. I think as we sort of wrap up the discussion of establishment, there was one, I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, this, this, is, this is a gift that the board is giving to EU-based data processors. So the, the flip of the example you just gave, Steve, where you have a U.S. or Mexico or Canada-based controller, which otherwise does not have an establishment in the EU, who wants to hire an EU-based data processor, right? The act of hiring an EU-based data processor does not make the US-based controller subject to the GDPR. Um, and, I, and I have to think that's simply the practical reality of, you know, the EU-based data processors are growing in size as a result of the GDPR. And uh, if you had made, I think there could be a good argument, right, that a US-based controller that avails itself of an EU-based data processor and sends all its um, uh, you know, PII over to have this done in France, you know, would be subject under the establishment provision. But this guideline clearly says it's not. I think that is the uh, ex example seven, which uses a, a Mexican retail company that happens to use an EU-based uh, processor, uh, is probably the clearest example of that in the guidelines. All right, so Michael, let, let's talk about the second of the two criteria, the targeting criteria. Sure. Uh, well, even if a company is not an EU establishment, it can still be subject to the GDPR if it is targeting people in the union. So the targeting criterion is about behavior uh, of the company, not always its location. There are two kinds of targeting, offering and monitoring. So offering is about offering goods and services to people in the union. Monitoring is about monitoring a person's behavior in the union. That second term, I think, seems a little odd on the first reading, but uh, those who spent time with, with the GDPR are probably already aware of it, and the guidelines clarify it. They give an example of a marketing company that analyzes customers' movements in a shopping center. Let's say those movements are collected through Wi-Fi tracking. So that is monitoring behavior. And the company may be in the U.S., but the behavior that it's monitoring is happening in the union. In any case, whichever kind of targeting is going on here, targeting applies to any natural person in the EU, any flesh and blood human being. doesn't matter if it's not an EU citizen or the person's not an EU resident. So if there's a U.S. startup that has an app that's designed for U.S. residents to use when they're visiting Paris or Rome, then the U.S. startup is targeting in the way that the guidelines um, describe. Why? Because that company is intending to process data about the location of natural persons at a time when they are in the EU. There's some good news here, though. As you can see, the way I'm putting it, there's a kind of intent or purpose 
or foreseeability analysis going on here. And that puts some limits on how far the arm of the GDPR can reach. You can see this in uh, example nine of the guidelines. They explain that if a U.S. news app is exclusively directed at the U.S. market, it doesn't matter if a U.S. tourist checks the app on her European vacation. In that case, the GDPR doesn't apply because the app isn't directed at the union. Steve, in, in, in Michael's example about the app sales, you know, at the moment that the sale occurs, it's clear that it's going to be used and only used, right, in an EU environment. So there's a good, there's a good intent. But when, does, when do these guidelines say that intent, or however you want to describe it, what, when is it triggered, when is it measured? Yeah, Jack, the, the guidelines actually help us understand what is the triggering event uh, for the analysis. And they say that it's, that when you're, whether you're targeting um, depends on the moment of offering the goods and services. So let's return to Michael's example. I, I believe it was example eight in the guidelines. While the company, the U.S. company could say it only intended to target U.S. residents while they were stateside, uh, perhaps this is where they were going to download the app they were going to use abroad. Uh, the moment of offering goods and services actually happened while they were abroad and started using the app. That's when the data was starting to come in and processing started taking place. I also want let's, to, let's go into the, the, the website examples that are given in the guidelines, which I thought were really helpful. So the first is, is example 12. We see a Turkish website that creates, prints, uh, photo albums uh, and sells them to various countries in the EU. So what did we know before? In Recital 23, we knew that there were certain factors that the GDPR looks at, that the regulators are going to be looking at to determine the intent to target, to set, offer goods and services in the EU. Uh, what are some of these examples? Making websites available in EU languages, accepting EU currency, indicating delivery in an EU country. Uh, the more countries you deliver, the more likely it's going to apply to you. And that goes back to Michael's comment about being, this being an in concreto analysis. So what does the, what do the guidelines add? Well, they, they, they dive again back into the EU case law, and they help us understand that there are some other factors that uh, may be at play. One of those that really stuck out to me that um, I thought was interesting is where a, a website uh, uses a search engine to optimize its ability to offer goods and services in an EU country. You wouldn't think that a regulator would be looking at something like that, uh, but in fact they, they are. And so it's very important to be looking at um, indirect touches and, and putting kind of everything on the table when talking about targeting intent to offer goods and services in the EU. Um, so, you know, going back to my, that example 12, just having a website, accepting EU currency, and indicating delivery in the EU country was enough for uh, the board to say that the GDPR applies to that country. And, and I also wanted to note uh, example 13, which was an interesting example. This is about the private company in Monaco processing personal data for employees for the purposes of just issuing salary, issuing checks. And a large number of those employees reside in Italy and France. 
So at first, this was like, oh, naturally, the GDPR has to apply to this country. But when you, are, when you disciplined, take the analysis one by one. Let's look at establishment. Well, uh, this country is in Monaco. It's outside the EU. And so the GDPR doesn't apply under the establishment prong. Then let's go to the second prong, which is targeting. Well, the guidelines now help us understand that offering goods and services doesn't include paying salary, which is a big deal for some companies that, you know, perhaps they have uh, employees that uh, also reside in, the, in Europe. Uh, so that's, that's kind of another helpful guideline uh, or another example in the guidelines. I mean, there are, there are 20 examples in, this, in the guidelines, and you really could make them into flashcards where the factual, like on the front of the card, right, you could put the factual prompt and on the back of the card the answer. And I think I would have gotten maybe 18 out of 20 right, but that was one of the ones I would have gotten wrong. I would have thought that if a non-EU country had employees that were EU employees and they were tracking their data as employees, including pay stubs and whatnot, that they would have to be subject to the GDPR. But it's, uh, when you break it down by the two criterion that the guidelines discuss, it does become evident that they're not. Right. right. It was, it's important to note that the, the, guideline, the example is very clear. It was about processing for purposes of salary. Uh, right, so uh, you can imagine there's a n number of examples where that company could maybe do something else with data for, of their own employees and then start offering goods and services within the scope of that, that prompt. And I think that, that next example, which is exhibit uh, example 14, talks about a Swiss company, actually a Swiss university. And again, Switzerland not in the EU, but because it's adjacent to the EU, a lot of Swiss companies and, and uh, entities are going to have to deal with some tough questions. And the, the example of the Swiss University is pretty important to our practice. We've been advising a, a fair number of private schools and colleges on the application of the GDPR. And it's tricky, but under the targeting prong, the example gives, you know, if, if the Swiss University has a master's degree program, it has a website for it, uh, it has it in the Swiss languages, the, you know, um, just German and English, um, and it accepts payment only in Swiss currency, it's not necessarily, probably not going to be found to be targeting, right? Um, because it's just a, a passive, they're willing to take someone from the EU, but they're not targeting the EU. But the example 14 gets tweaked a little bit at the end, where the Swiss university starts offering summer courses and takes out ads or otherwise advertises in German and Austrian uh, universities, trying to solicit students within the EU directly. And in that case, it's going to be found to have targeted and it would apply. You know, a, a third piece of this with universities that we've seen a fair amount is, you know, if universities in the U.S. or, or elsewhere, not outside the EU, keep admissions officers, you know, in satellite offices or on the road in EU trying to drum up um, applicants from the EU, uh, you know, there's going to potentially, there's going to need to be an establishment uh, analysis as well to see if, you know, those employees who are working on behalf of the, the non-EU universities in the EU, you know, end up subjecting uh, those universities to GDPR. All right, but what, um, so what happens, Michael, what happens here in, in that kind of a scenario where, let's say you're a university like you are in Exhibit 13, where you're not established, you don't have an establishment, but you are doing targeting. What do you have to do? Well, okay, so you're targeting, you're covered by Article 3.2. At a minimum, you've got to designate a representative in the EU. Um, 
you know, there are some, some things that ease this up a little bit because an entity with an establishment can take advantage of the one-stop shop mechanism in the GDPR and doesn't need to separately designate an Article 27 rep. But here we're talking about companies that aren't establishments, but they fall under targeting. They've got to have a rep in the union. The good news is uh, the guidelines do mention there isn't some weird catch-22. The act of having a representative doesn't actually convert you into an establishment, but you've got to have one. Um, and the representative has to be different from your data protection officer, your DPO. Can't be the same person. And they're envisioning somebody who's more, a DPO has to be more independent than someone who is representing you. You know, the, one of the other things that stood out to me in the guidelines is that the regulators are, or the board is telling us that uh, when one of the requirements in the GDPR is that you identify your Article 27 representative uh, that Michael was just talking about. And, you know, when we're doing these privacy policies for clients and, you know, one of the things that, that we need to, it's all about transparency. And being transparent includes identifying uh, ways in which you can contact representatives. So the fact that the regulators are telling us, you know, make sure you also include this in the privacy policy, that's a reminder that the regulators are going to be looking for that. Uh, in, in reviewing privacy policies for companies. And so that's just, a, a, you know, in, in the very beginning of the guidelines, the, the board says the, once the GDPR applies, all of it applies. And it's very, this is one of the sticking points, is that Article 27 representative designation for those who fall under that targeting prong. It's, it's a challenge, but if, if at the end of the day you reach the conclusion that the GDPR applies under that, Article 27 comes with it. Under you know minus exceptions that the that article talks about, but for all intents and purposes, Article Twenty Seven is triggered. But that's good. I mean that when you go through the guidelines, I I like to think, okay, what am I adding to checklists that I have in place for incident response guides? What am I adding to checklists that we have in place for privacy policies? And certainly, listing your Article Twenty Seven representative is now going to be added to everybody's checklist about your privacy policy. You got to put it there because it, 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 with these guidelines, it almost makes it seem like if you don't have it there, you're going to be in trouble. Um, and it's, it's something that they couldn't have been more plain about. Yeah, and, it, and it's an it. easy thing to cite people for. It's black and white. Yeah. Well, wanted to thank Michael Yeager uh, from our New York office, uh, who's a shareholder who does a lot of uh, cybersecurity work, and we've got uh, Steve Blickensturfer from our Miami office, who does quite a bit of privacy and GDPR counseling. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael and Steve. And I'm Jack Clabby. Uh, shareholder in our Tampa office, works on a number of uh, data breach incident response matters. Thank you all for, for joining us. You've been listening to Carlton Fields' Cyber Podcast Series with Jack Clabby, Stephen Blickensturfer, and Michael Yeager. You can download our cyber app on Google Play and the Apple App Store. To learn more about our cybersecurity and data privacy practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and a receipt of it does not constitute, an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.